What's the first thought you have when you wake up in the morning? The sun's coming in, you open your eyes. Oh shit, I'm late for work. Then you get a cup of coffee or you take a shower, you get dressed, whatever your routine is, but you gotta get to work. Then at nighttime, before you go into bed, what do you think? Oh, I better go to bed now or I'm gonna be late for work. I'm only gonna get seven hours of sleep. That's not gonna be enough. When you're working class, you're doing this constant working class calculus, as I call it, where you're trying to figure out the exact amount of money you're going to need always. So like for gas, you think, oh, well, I can get this gas around the corner, but there's a much cheaper gas two miles down the road. But then I spend a little bit of gas going that extra two miles to get the slightly cheaper gas. Is it worth it? Is it not? Every single dollar has to be kind of squeezed and accounted for. There's not ever going to be a time where you just come home and say, you know what I want to do? I want to spend $2,000 on a suit or something like that. Like that's just never going to happen because you don't have it. So you're constantly calculating food, utilities, energy uses. Growing up, I don't know how many times my dad's like, oh my God, why are all the lights in the house on? And he'd freak out, you know, if there was more than one or two lights on. Or We always had to turn off the power and everything, and the electricity bill was never that much. But, I mean, it was just just the idea that, like, we're using air conditioning if we don't need it or using heat if we don't need it in the winter times. Alabama gets pretty cold in the winter, but you'd see him put on an extra sweatshirt and an extra, it looked like a damn Eskimo he'd have on three layers or something. Just this sort of idea that gets into it where you're not wasting anything because every dollar is somebody's labor. They had to work to get that and it's not just meaningless. For a lot of people that are rich, they, they don't understand that. They can't really get it. Another good way I saw it was in Game of Thrones when this High Sparrow, and I don't like that character at all, but he did say something very true when he was talking about the finery that the women and ladies and of the court were wearing and he goes that dress you're wearing a year of somebody's life what you put on and just walk around in that took somebody a year of their life to make that jewelry took a month for them to put together you're wearing their time and that's such a great way to think about it to think about everything that we're doing that's somebody's time that they put into that that's their labor that's time that they'll never get back and so to think about possibly the end of work which is what this podcast is about, is really exciting to me personally. The kind of trend that we're going towards more is to see decreased populations and increased automations. And we're going to kind of get into that because there's several theories about what we should do. There's new economic theories that never existed before. Uh, UBI, universal basic income, modern monetary theory, some things like that. I'm a little skeptical of some of these things, and it's not necessarily because I'm I'm any kind of philosophically opposed to them, right? Like, sometimes when I hear UBI being shut down, it's like a philosophical point. Like, Joe Biden, I think, never looked more out of step and out of touch when he was in the campaign show. They asked him about UBI, universal basic income, which is basically you get paid a check. Andrew Yang said it at $18,000 a year for kind of just existing, for just being an American citizen. So it's a little bit like... I won't even say Social Security because Social Security is based on what you worked. It's what was taken out of your paycheck. It's basically just you're an American citizen, and that comes with the privilege of getting, I believe he said it at $1,500 a month. And you just get that because automation is making things tougher. It's harder for people to pay their bills. And Biden said he didn't like it because he was like, well, if people don't have a job, then they don't have a purpose, kind of is what he was saying, that work gives life meaning. Well, that's not really true for a lot of people in their jobs. There's some jobs where maybe that's true, and some people get a great deal of joy out of their jobs, but a lot of Americans don't. 
I mean, we're just at that point where a lot of stuff that I've done, my work that I enjoy is Alabama liberal, but that's never paid bills. I've never made money doing that. I've only recently started, uh, I finally put a donate box on the website, which you can donate to if you'd like, but you don't feel, don't feel obligated. I'm not trying to give people a lot of pressure. I know a lot of people that listen to this, a dollar, it's, it matters to them. And I'm going to sell some books in a few months. I'm finally writing some books that are going to come out and maybe you save your money for that. But I'm just saying, I finally gave in to like doing a donate box. I've been trying to get a book deal with a traditional publishing company for years and years. I'm just going to bite the bullet and self-publish eBooks which I, I had always resisted doing that because I, I didn't want to do it. But I'm just going to say, look, I, I can't wait forever. But Alabama Liberal, you know, we don't really, I don't have sponsors for this podcast. Like at the beginning of this podcast, there's no like, oh, this is brought to you by asbestos or this is brought to you by big tobacco or something like that. And I'm not saying that they would necessarily even be interested in sponsoring a podcast that's sort of this, uh, you might say niche or whatever. But I just never really even tried to go out there and get sponsors and things like that. I've never really hustled. Uh, the platform of Alabama Liberal to try to sell things or try to make money and things like that. It's just something I sort of enjoy doing and sort of enjoy giving a platform, but it's never made any money and it's never really been designed to make a lot of money. And so other jobs that I've had to do, they don't give me any purpose. They don't give me any meeting. I'm just a body doing a job. I'm just a sack of meat shoveling things around or whatever. So for a lot of people, I think that when they say things like, oh, well, universal basic income, it'll rob them of the dignity of work. The dignity of work, if you're shoveling shit off of a public bathroom, like if you're Walmart, they tell you to go in there and clean up the bathrooms. You got to wipe down the bathroom seats, the toilet seats. Somebody throws up, you got to clean it up. There's not a lot of dignity in that work. And I'm not putting it down. I've done it, unlike a lot of people that talk about UBI, either for or against. I've done those kind of jobs, right? And I'm not putting it down, but I'm just saying because I've done it, I know that it sucks. If you could get paid $18,000 a year, which is the same as working at Walmart, to not work at Walmart, well, you'd probably take that, wouldn't you? I know I would. I mean, at that point, it's like, why do I have to go to work at Walmart and get abused? I worked at Walmart. I was supposed to be a cashier, but so often they would close down my register and make me go out and push carts because the people that did the cart crew, they wouldn't show up or or whatever, and they'd make me go do that, possibly to make me quit. CSM manager... There's a manager of the cashier. She'd call me college boy because I, I was trying to go to college at that time and was sort of resentful of that, I think. Food World, same thing. So there's all these horrible jobs. Food World, Food Land. These are regional grocery store chains in northern Alabama. I think Food World's out of business now. Walmart, Applebee's, uh, Top of the River. That's a seafood restaurant. I was a busboy there. That was one of the worst jobs. Probably the worst job I've ever had because busboys are running from start to finish, wiping down tables. You can't get them clean fast enough. And the manager of the Gunnersville one, he was a tyrant, man. He was just nuts. I mean, he was just absolutely insane. It was like working for Saddam Hussein or something, like a lunatic, right? He'd fly off the handle about this and that. And there's a way that certain managers, I think especially in the Southeast, they talk to people that work under them. Manager at Foodland, this guy Mike, he was an abusive drunk. He'd scream at bag boys. Manager, like I said, top of the river, he was off the handle. The CSM lady, Tiffany at Walmart, she would make you go out and push carts and call you college boy and make these little snide comments and things like that. And fill in a box cutter. They didn't care. They told me to go out and fix a lot in the parking lot. I got electrocuted. 
I still have a red spot in my left eye from where I was throwing out hot grease, which I wasn't really supposed to be doing, but they told me to do it and I had to do it anyway. And so I have permanent damage in my left eye from a job I had when I was 16 years old. Can you imagine that? 16 years old, Alabama, minimum wage job, $7 an hour. And don't even have health insurance, don't even have benefits, and I have permanent damage in my left eye. For what? To make 150 bucks a week, 200 bucks a week? I mean, you begin to see a pattern here with these jobs where they're just trying to take advantage of people. They're just trying to abuse people. And most of the United States, I think, works in a job like that. They work in a job they get no meaning from, they have no purpose from, It's there's no dignity in it. And the managers of these jobs are just abusing people. They People that they have power over, they take advantage of them. And some of that is nationwide. I think that happens everywhere. But in the Southeast, people say sometimes, why is the Southeast so conservative? Why is it so much more conservative than the rest of the nation? I think it's partly because of slavery and the agricultural system that was set up over centuries ago to where slavery's there and they're abusing the hell out of the slaves, and even the white working class people that were working right beside the slaves, they're abusing them too because they want them to work harder. They want them to work faster. Yeah, I guess they're technically paid like a small little fucking measly wage, like here's a dollar a day or something like that, but they want them work hard, long, sweaty hours of boiling the bull and sun doing this agricultural work. So because of the way that the agricultural system and the plantation system was set up, it bleeds into the culture to where it's almost like, if you have a job and you get paid any kind of a wage, you're lucky. There are slaves over there that don't get paid anything. So if we're giving you a dollar a day, oh boy, you're lucky and you better take the abuse that we're giving out. It's amazing to me that the majority of the Southern troops in the Civil War were white working class men who would have greatly benefited had slavery ended. If you really think about that, that's a unique perspective because people always think, oh, in the South, all the white people, they all benefited from slavery. Most of them did not. I mean, I know you've heard the statistic, 98% of people in the South did not own slaves or whatever. There were so many that they thought, oh, well, if we earn enough of a wage, we will be able to. It was like a middle-class dream. Like the way we now think about, oh, I can own a, a blender or I can own a a Tesla car that can do chores for me, they might have thought that way about owning a person, about owning a slave, which I know that's a horrifyingly dated idea or whatever, but that's maybe how they thought about it. But that was, again, that was some trickle-down economic scheme because they weren't going to be able to. They never could have been able to. If they'd worked their whole lives on a dollar a day or whatever, majority of those people were not going to ever be able to own another person or a slave, a cook, a clean, a labor person to do their chores for them. So that was how they hooked them. That was like the beginning of the trickle-down economic system. If you work really, really hard, one day you can own a person that can do all your chores for you instead of just saying, well, you could pay me more money now and I can maybe pay somebody now to help me do all these chores instead of maybe one one day down the road, 10 years from now, I can have somebody do this stuff for me. But if slavery ends, wages go up for everybody. And so then they can have more money at that time, not maybe one day hypothetically on another person, but then nobody owns anybody and they have to pay competitive wages. So ending slavery would have greatly benefited most of the people that were out there fighting for the Southern Army, the Confederate Army. Today, you still see people, you know, rocking the Confederate flag or putting up a big stink about it. They want to remove a Civil War statue. They're putting up a big stink about it. Most of those generals were fairly wealthy. They owned a lot of slaves. They owned a lot of land. They were like part of the ruling class. And you still see that system of they're trying to protect somebody else's wealth. Because right after Reconstruction, 
the Ku Klux Klan, you know, they start terrorizing everybody. And a lot of that is put up through the judges, the plantation owners, the ruling class, the wealthy white Southern people that had controlled the, the place before the Civil War. And so then when Reconstruction pulls out and ends, those people take back over. And then you still have the same people at the bottom, the same foot soldiers who were like, oh, yeah, we got rid of all them Reconstruction Yankees or we, we got rid of all them freed slaves or whatever. But, but they're still at the bottom. They're still where they were before. And you still see those people willing to be the foot soldiers of Donald Trump or whoever, this New York billionaire. He didn't give a shit about them. He didn't care about them. He's never paid anybody really great wages or anything like that. He's never really been a fighter for the middle class or the working class. He's never cared about that stuff. But they're willing to storm the Capitol if this guy asked them to, or they're willing to go out there and blow up a post office if he said that, oh, well, that's going to help uh, me and against Joe Biden. or what. I mean, they're willing to commit these stupid atrocious acts for what? But that's part of that mentality of your job is just so important that money is important, that your job is important, that your job is just so important that if anybody threatens that, we must stop them. When a union comes in, they protect workers and they advocate for their interest and their benefits. And for a long time in Alabama, unions have been treated very hostily. They're like, oh, we don't want a union around here. Why do you not want a union around here? Oh, well, if a union comes in, then we could lose our jobs. You mean the jobs that don't pay anything? Where are they going to go? All the jobs that could have been offshored have been offshored. Just ask people in DeKalb County about that. You get all those sock mills. Some of my family members, they worked in the sock mills in DeKalb County. They went from 30 sock mills to like six within 20-year period. Most of them have been offshored to Belize, Mexico, some of them in Asia. Where are your jobs going to go? The jobs that are in Alabama right now, they're there because they were trying to avoid the unions in the north. Places like you know, Minnesota and Michigan, places like that, they have unions. Some of those states in the north are not right-to-work states, so all these greedy employers, they brought them down to Alabama because they can pay them less. You might have seen where Amazon, there was a factory in Alabama they wanted to unionize, and there was a big battle about that. And a lot of people, the arguments against it were, well, if we unionize, then Amazon could shut us down. They could offshore us. They could automate us. All of our jobs could be automated. But I'm, again, thinking, like, would that really be such a bad thing? And you don't see a lot of politicians go out there and say automation is a good thing, and they probably would be kicked out of office if they did. They'd be labeled as clueless. So I guess I'll say it for them. In the macro view, could it be better to automate a lot of these jobs that suck? Because working at Amazon sucks. I've never done it, but, like, to work in a warehouse at Amazon, I imagine it has to be at least as bad as the jobs I used to do. You're running constantly. They make you wear a bracelet that tracks your productivity, quote unquote, your efficiency, quote unquote. This is like your bathroom breaks. This is how many items you scan. This is if you spend a little bit of extra time talking to somebody. And again, you think, who is Amazon to do this to make us run around constantly? Like, okay, yes, we have a job. But like, are you God? You get to monitor every muscle inflection, every nerve ending. You, you get to study our movements. You get to know our bathroom breaks. You get to know how fast we move. And if, if it's up to snuff, if it's up to your standards, Mr. Jeff Bezos, worth over $100 billion. I mean, how do you get in that mindset of, yes, I work for you. Don't really want to, but I guess I have to. And yes, you pay me a wage. I wouldn't call it a living wage but you pay a wage, but just because you pay a wage, 
you own me somehow. Like I come in and you monitor everything I do. Like you own the way that I am. You own, I don't understand that mindset. And that's a real different mindset than we've always had. People talk a lot about social conservatives and how they've gone crazy. Social conservatives are the same today as they've always been. They're actually less crazy. When my parents were born, segregation was the norm in the Southeast. You know, they've given up some huge things. Gay marriage was not legal. Now it is. Abortion was not legal when my parents were born. Now it is. I mean, yeah, they're still fighting these things. But if you really look at it, the country is much more socially liberal than it used to be. Marijuana is now KIV. And the governor of Alabama, she signed it to where medical marijuana is now legal there. Something that probably a lot of people would never think they would see, right? Still can't buy a lottery ticket, <laughs> which I'm never going to quite get over because of how stupid that is. But I'm saying socially, the country is definitely moving in the right direction. And it has for a while. It has for about 50 years. But economically, things are more conservative than they've been in, in a very long time. I mean, probably not since the 1910s or the 1920s have you seen workers being treated so shittily. So not since before the New Deal have you seen workers just get pounded like this. And there's some horrifying statistics out there that I think people are not paying attention to. I've put out on Twitter that millennials today own less wealth than Gen X did at that time, and Gen X owned less wealth than the baby boomers did. Baby boomers, by the time they were turning 40, they owned 20% of the wealth in the United States. For Gen X, it was about 9.5%. For millennials, we're turning 40 now. Some of the older ones are turning 40. They own 4.8%. So from baby boomers to Gen X was half. From Gen X to millennials is half. Where's Gen Z going to be? My kids who are in Generation Alpha, where are they going to be at, right? Like says so it's only going in one direction. And that's really scary because millennials, I think the greatest problem we're not talking about is that millennials have no money to retire on. So like I said, the older millennials are becoming 40. 40 is about the age where you can start to sort of see your retirement lining up. You can start to sort of see the end of the rainbow, so to speak. There should be at least be a plan that in 20 years you will be here. And they can't even begin to see that. Most millennials have no money whatsoever in savings. They have no house. They have no assets. What they have is a mound of debt. They have debt from student loans that they're still paying off. They have possibly medical debt because of how expensive just healthcare has become in this country, astronomically expensive. They possibly have credit card debt, which they may be using to pay off their student loan debt. I mean, it's a Russian nesting doll of debt, basically. It's just, oh, we'll use credit card debt to pay off the medical debt, to pay off the student loan debt, and then they don't even have housing debt. So they don't even own anything that's worth a shit. Something like half of millennials still live with their parents. So you think about it and you think, this is really a scandal. We graduated in that 2008 Great Recession period that was so disastrous. It was disastrous for me, but it basically meant that there were no jobs. There were no jobs at all for two or three years while the recession was getting sorted out, and that put us behind. But even once the recession got sorted out, what happened? A lot of companies, they didn't pay what they paid before that recession happened, and they didn't want to pay what they paid, and they don't pay today what they might have paid 30 years ago. And then even now, when you have a job in corporate America, what do they do? They say, oh, well, so-and-so quit. Do they fill that job? Well, for about six months, they see if they don't have to. And they ask the people around that job, can you do more work? Can you fill in for that person? Can you take on more of their workload? That's what they do. And there's a job vacancy for about six months. They try to see if they can basically shuffle that work around to other people and see if they really need to fill that job. And they drag their feet filling job postings a lot of times. People talk a lot about the skills gap and things like that, which is a little bit of a 
to be honest, it's a little bit of a canard. A lot of employers, they just don't want to fill those jobs. They want to see if they can get by without filling them. Every single job is money on a spreadsheet. And so they look at that money on a spreadsheet and they say, can we save a little here? Can we save a little there? Can we squeeze a little there, right? And so the more jobs they can eliminate, that's savings for them. That's more money that they take in. And then that makes them look good. Whoever the manager is that had 10 people when they started and now they've only got eight people and they're doing just as well as they were before, that's savings that they can pass on and say, oh, look, I saved this amount of money. And they say, oh, this person's going places. They got the right idea. But when the whole economy operates that way, a lot of jobs are being eliminated and the jobs that are left over, people are stressed the fuck out working them. They're stressed out all the time. People were kind of relieved with COVID. They thought that COVID may transition more work from home, which it has. But what that kind of means is that there's now a blurry line between work and and home. There is no line, really. The line's very blurry to where it's now normal to call a meeting at 7 p.m. It's normal to call a meeting at 7 p.m. It's normal to ask your workers to do more. And it's normal to ask them to sort of almost live at work. There is no really office hours anymore. It's all just work. And so that's taken over such a huge chunk of their lives that it's almost to the point of when you talk about the end of work, it's almost like, well, how could that even be possible? Because work is almost becoming, we're almost becoming machines that are hardwired into a company. We're, we're hardwired into that. Our natural biological processes are getting fused with capitalism in a way where it's now impossible to see us doing anything else. So many people today, they say, well, I'd like to have kids but I, I can't afford to, or I, I don't know how I would do it. That can impact my job in some kind of a way. People get vacation days, they don't even take them. There's all these millions of vacation days every year that Americans don't use because they're scared to take them. They're scared they'll be gone for two weeks and they'll come back and their job, somebody might've had it or taken it, or they need, they find out they don't need them. It's all about making yourself so essential to a company that they don't get rid of you. And that's obviously a big change from the way baby boomers grew up and the way the silent generation grew up, Joe Biden's generation. When you had FDR take over and the New Deal reforms instituted, you started having unions really take over. You started having uh, standards put on the workday, unemployment insurance, disability insurance, Social Security, eventually with LBJ, Medicare, Medicaid, the social safety net, food stamps, WIC, all that stuff was put into place. None of that stuff are new programs. People talk about getting rid of it, getting rid of it, getting rid of it. I'm like, all that shit was put in place back in the 60s at the latest, the 30s, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. When workers got paid good wages, a man with a family of four, his wife didn't have to work. You had one income for a family of four. And they had two cars and a two-car garage and a four-bedroom house. And so one income could provide a good lifestyle for a family of four. That's no longer true today. And so it's amazing to me people want to get rid of all these programs at a time when we've never been worse off economically, majority of people. So they're talking about all this like, oh, well, Obama, he came in and gave everybody a rainbow and a unicorn and a car. And we got we to scale back these programs. I'm like, you're talking about programs from FDR's day and LBJ's day when workers got paid more and they get paid less today. And you still want to take these programs away, even though they're more necessary. What sense does that make? People would listen to that and they'd say, well, it sounds like you understand the need for UBI. I definitely understand the need for it. My problem with it is not so much the, the, the philosophical thing. It's not that I'm a conservative who doesn't think that every dollar from the government has to be go towards something or whatever. Like I fully understand that the government has to step in. They have to do certain things. I wouldn't say 
uh, anything bad about somebody who calls themselves a socialist. People make a big deal about, oh, well, people who are socialist in this, this word or whatever, which is almost crazy that they make such a big deal about it. People are so worried about socialism at a time when we've never had more inequality. Inequality is off the charts. And they're, they're, it's crazy that people say any kind of new tax on the rich people is socialism and socialism is rampant. And millennials, I hear this all the time, they're like millennials and they're socialists and Gen Z are basically communists and all this. We want less than what the baby boomers calling us socialists had. And they call us the socialists. They said that we're the crazy ones. Baby boomer salaries were higher when they started working than ours are today. But if we say we don't like that, we're socialists. So it's a little backwards the way people think about it. Bill Maher had a great joke if a conservative had an entire pizza and it was a hundred slices and a hundred people were on the island and then the first guy eats 80 slices and then the next guy comes along and says hey why don't you just eat 75 that's socialism and they socialism has to be set up because some people are greedy fucking hogs they will eat and eat and eat other people's wealth other people's money they don't really think about it right like bill gates is this grand philanthropist but he doesn't necessarily think that the people under him should have all this money or the middle class should have all this money. Warren Buffett has talked about the need to raise rich people's taxes, but he doesn't really pay that well. I mean, he talks about, oh, well, I pay less taxes than my secretary does at 50 grand a year. Well, why does your secretary only make 50 grand a year? Some of the family members of Warren Buffett, they've talked about how stingy and cheap he is. So I think, you know, rich people have gotten to be insanely cheap in this country. Some people have never really been around rich people, so they don't really know. I have in Los Angeles a little bit, and some of these people that make all this money, they don't really, it's it's strange, you know, like you're around them and they kind of act like you should pay to be around them, like you're supposed to be some benefit to them. You go to lunch and I pick up the check. They're worth $50 million and I pick up the check. I don't know. It's just, it's very odd the way that they act about it. It's like, you know that you have more but it's almost like I'm supposed to give you gifts. I'm supposed to buy your stuff. I'm I'm supposed to pay for the privilege of your company almost. And it's like, why is that? A big job you see people have here is consulting. Everybody's a consultant for this and that. What are you paying for? The privilege of their expertise. What's their expertise? They're a consultant. What do they consult on? How to get more money for themselves, make a job out of it, I guess. I don't know. But it's like there's a sort of a mentality that the people who have a lot of money their time is very valuable, so you need to pay for their time, even though you don't have a lot of money, you don't have as much as they do. I hear all this, and I, I definitely see the need for UBI, but I guess I'm concerned about inflation. If you give everybody $18,000 a year, that just becomes the new baseline for poverty. Because the second you give everybody $18,000 a year, rent is going to go up, healthcare costs are going to go up. Student loan payments are going to go up. Car payments are going to go up. I don't see a way you could do it and not have inflation. And then they say, well, we're going to do it. We're going to fund it through a VAT, which is a value-added tax. But if you do a value-added tax, there's probably nothing that's going to stop that company from passing the tax onto the consumer. So then the cost of goods goes up. I really don't see a way that you could give everybody $18,000 a year and it not immediately filter into you know, the joke might be like $99 chicken nuggets from Wendy's or something like that. Like it immediately creates this inflation to where it's almost like, what's the point? That's my concern is is that one. The second one would be the debt, which people who believe in modern monetary theory, they don't really think the debt and the deficit matter at all. I'm sort of in that sweet spot where I'm not a Paul Ryan conservative where I, the idea that you can 
zero out the debt, the Rand Paul sort of fantasy that you can get the debt down to zero, that's a fantasy. There's no country on the planet that doesn't have debt. China has a debt. Canada has a debt. Everywhere has a debt. So there's no such thing as a modern industrialized nation that doesn't have a debt. But I'm also not totally where like AOC is, which is to say like you can run up a $40 trillion deficit and it doesn't matter at all. Like I, I don't really believe that either. I think the sweet spot is basically the maybe the Bill Clinton years or something where the budget is operating at a surplus. There's still a debt, in it, but you're getting to a good position where you're not just squandering trillions of dollars, basically. I think the debt needs to be lessened. The deficit needs to... Bill Clinton, you know, left office with a surplus, and we still had we still had debt. The government wasn't going to operate at a deficit every single year. It's the first time that's happened in a long time. So with modern monetary theory, the idea that you can just sort of have this enormous trillions and trillions of deficit, that's kind of based on the idea that the dollar is the world standard in currency, right? That's why we can do that, and other countries might not be. Because every country that's ever done that, like Zimbabwe, at one point a single dollar from Zimbabwe is like a million Zimbabwe bucks or something like that. I mean, you had such bad inflation, it was a joke. Venezuela has experienced this. Countries typically that are third world and they just print and print and print money or whatever, their currency is a joke. It's so devalued that it's basically worthless. It's basically toilet paper to have all this currency. I think modern monetary theory prefaces that, well, that wouldn't happen to the United States because the, the dollar is the world standard. Well, it is because we don't do that, because we don't do what Zimbabwe and Venezuela and some other countries have done, and we don't just print money until it's worthless. I think that's the reason the dollar is like that. And that's also prefaced on the idea that like China's currency doesn't replace ours, the euro doesn't replace ours, uh, a new cryptocurrency doesn't replace ours. So that's prefaced on the idea that the dollar stays the world standard forever, which it may not. And then if it doesn't, and then there's a cryptocurrency, some would say Bitcoin, some might say Zelly. I think Facebook's come up with Libra or some kind of cryptocurrency, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm not saying that's going to happen anytime soon, but let's just say that a different currency replaces the dollar. We will be very sorry that we didn't at least attempt to lower the deficit, to get in, in that Bill Clinton sweet spot where it's like there's still a debt. But the government's not operating at a loss every single year. There's going to be a surplus for the first time in ages. Plus, I'm concerned that we have all this debt. And what has it gone towards? Our education system is not properly funded. Millennials have no retirement, as I've said. The infrastructure package, that's going to be additional debt on top of the debt. I'm just concerned we have this deficit and there's no... What has it gone towards? I mean, where, where can we see it? Because even those stimulus checks... If you kind of do the math and you think, okay, about 300 million Americans got stimulus checks, let's just say roughly that amount, and let's say like $1,000, well, that's only $300 billion. So these stimulus packages that came through, I mean, they were $2 trillion, one of them was, another, you know, and, and th these, were, these were trillions of dollars, and yet we're only getting about $300 billion of that in those direct stimulus checks. So where the hell did the rest of this money go? And I know they've explained first responders and blah, 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 and all this stuff. But I mean, it, I am a little concerned that modern monetary theory comes along at a time when it's sort of a dangerous message as, as Reaganomics comes along at a time when it's sort of a dangerous message where deregulation and tax cuts for the rich, they're very clearly not working. And yet that message is still being put out there. Who came up with 
trickle-down economic theory. Does anybody know? You might say Arthur Laffer, the economist that worked under Reagan, or you might say Reagan helped popularize it, and that's true. But the original theory that rich people should pay less taxes and it somehow creates wealth, it actually came from Andrew Mellon, the heir to the Mellon. And this guy was the Secretary of Treasury under Herbert Hoover. And he worked under a few presidents before that, but he started under Harding, the disastrous president who think being the treasury secretary during the time of the teapot dome scandal would be enough to discredit somebody. But just in case it wasn't, he held that position under Herbert Hoover where he helped engineer the greatest depression the United States has ever seen. And so the original architect of the idea that the more you give rich people tax cuts, the more it filters down to the people. He was treasury secretary during the great depression. And he wrote a book called Taxation, the People's Business, which is sort of, in my opinion, the origins of where this idea came from. One of the all-time great assholes in American history. And he's the guy that came up with this. So you could see where trickle-down theory, even at the time it was being proposed, that made no sense. Great Depression couldn't have been a worse time to give rich people a tax cut. But that's what he wanted to do. Ronald Reagan comes along at a time when it couldn't have come at a worse time to deregulate everything, give rich people a tax cut, break up the unions. But that's what he wanted to do. George W. Bush comes along at a time when deregulation made no sense, and it made no sense to give rich people a tax cut, squander Clinton's budget surplus, but that's what he wanted to do. Donald Trump comes along at a time when it makes no sense to give rich people a tax cut. That's what I'm saying these ideas, they never change. And even when Joe Biden's over there talking about a third stimulus and not one single Republican votes for it, they're over there talking about an estate tax cut. <laughs> an estate tax cut would be singularly stupid at this point because they've talked about how baby boomers are finally beginning to pass their wealth to millennials. And you're talking about the greatest wealth transfer in the history of America. Now, it's been, they've been talking about this for years and years. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like, damn, when's this going to happen? Because fucking baby boomers are still working. They're 70-something years old. They're still working, being like, hey, I'm going to live forever, you know? And it's really becoming to the point where it's like they're never going to pass down that wealth. But just in case that we actually might accidentally fund the government by having the greatest wealth transfer in the history of the world from baby boomers to millennials. Oh, they want to make sure there's an estate tax cut. The government doesn't get properly funded from that, right? You see these bad ideas and they just circulate and circulate. It's honestly kind of maddening that we have this disconnect between economics, what's really happening and the reality of it. Where does that come from? There's a great documentary called Inside Job. And it won the Best Documentary Oscar, I believe, 2010 or 2011. And it's made by Charles Ferguson, but it talks about the financial crisis. The financial crisis had just happened at that time. And it kind of does, a, in my opinion, a lot better job than The Big Short does of explaining it, kind of getting into the guts of it, what happened, why it happened, why Lehman Brothers went out of business, why the bad housing loans were being passed. But one of the most interesting sections is at the very end, and I had never heard this before, which was that a lot of economics professors at these big Ivy League schools, they're being funded by the banks. And so the big banks, they write them checks for consulting again, the scourge of the world, consultants and consulting fees, but they would write them huge consulting fee checks, and then they would help spread their message throughout the Ivy League schools. And so that way, everybody's kind of on the same page of economics, which is to basically say, oh, well, the key to the economics is what we want, which is deregulation, not regulating the banks, not breaking them up, things like that. And that way, people could say, well, why are all these bad ideas coming out of the economics disciple? Why do you have modern monetary theory coming out of the left wing? trickle-down economics coming out of the right wing? Why is there no 
balance in these economic theories, why they're so out of whack, I think because they're being funded. They're being basically paid to come up with these theories. And then if one top professor at Harvard or Yale or wherever, if they come up with this theory, then everybody starts to kind of echo that because they don't want to go against the grain. But it's a lot about getting paid, a lot of these consulting fees. They And they tracked it down. I mean, one, one guy was getting like $150,000. His professorship at Harvard didn't pay that, but he did a little bit of consulting for, let's say, Goldman Sachs they're being funded in that way. And that's why you get a lot of kind of ideas about economics that are skewed, I think. But so when you come to it and say, well, what would the advantage of having no work or no money? Like if it's the end of money, because I think something like UBI is basically the end of money. What if we had no money? People always say things like two sort of contrasting theories, which is on the one hand, money makes the world go round and then money is the root of all evil. So if you believe both of those things, and I kind of do, you might think, well, evil makes the world go round. Like money is, is the what makes the world go round. But if it's also the greatest source of evil, then you almost think, well, and of course, a lot of people do think that. They think modern capitalism is bad, but they think it's also very powerful. And that's why there's bad value incentives everywhere. That's why people say, why have people gotten so greedy or gotten so much worse or so rude or they people just worse than they used to be? If you believe that, you might think that it had something to do with capitalism because it's now off the charts or whatever. You know, what does it look like to have no money to where money is just irrelevant and meaningless or whatever? That could be interesting, but it's even more interesting to me to have no work, the end of work, the end of labor, the end of jobs. You know, we evolved from monkeys. So for a long time, we're in the food chain. Other things eat us. The greatest thing humanity ever did was take ourselves out of the food chain. We're no longer really worried on a day-to-day basis about getting eaten. I mean, maybe if you go totally by yourself up in the middle of Alaska and don't carry a gun or bear repellent, you could get eaten by a bear. But on a day-to-day basis, human beings are not being eaten. Okay, we're out of the food chain, except for the odd hippo or crocodile attack or something like that. But 99.99% of us, we're not in the food chain. And that's the greatest thing humanity ever did. What if you take yourself out of the economic food chain, right? If there's no jobs or no money or something like that, the economic food chain is disrupted in that way to where human beings don't, we just don't worry about the thing that's occupied humanity for centuries and centuries, right? I mean, for centuries and centuries, work has played such a huge role. My last name is British. And most British last names, if you'll notice, they come from jobs. Shepherd, Farmer, Baker, Smith comes from Blacksmith, Fletcher's an arrow maker, Archer is somebody that shoots the arrows, Fisher, Cobbler, Cooper, that's a barrel maker. So you get the idea. You can see a lot of, that's how baked in the cake these jobs were, was that it was just so important that whatever you did for a living or whatever, that it actually became your last name. And if you think about it, that's pretty crazy. That's like all the slaves that they took their slave master's last name, Smith. And then when they were emancipated, like Malcolm X, he gave an X for his last name because he didn't really, he's like, my last name's Little. That was the slave owner's name. I don't want that last name. So a lot of people started to sort of change their last names or get rid of it or go to African names that they chose for themselves. If you think about it, you know, you can begin to see that in the British society, even centuries before slavery, even back in the, you know, 15th, 16th century, where it's like, hey, what's your last name? Cook, what do you do? I'm a cook. And so if you think about your job as occupying so much of your time, your place, your value, what does it look like when you're freed from that? And so I get a little excited thinking about a a world freed from the economic food chain, because like I said, my real source of income has never been Alabama liberal, but it's where a lot of my time goes, my joy goes the things I enjoy to do, go into the YouTube channel, 
which I've never made a penny off of. YouTube changed their way they pay people to where you have to make so many views and so many hits in a single month to even get paid. So I've released over 200 videos, never been paid for a single one of them. Alabama Liberal, I've had over 2,000 articles. Barely made any money. At one time, I had website ads. They were so bad that I eventually got rid of them because it was just these conservative spam ads on my website, which I hated. I hated having an article that was like, here's why conservatives are ruining America. And then right beside it is an ad that said, buy Ann Coulter's new book, Why Liberals Are Ruining America. You know, like it sent this horrible mixed message. So I kind of got rid of these terrible ads. And they actually had a dead link for a lot of them to where even though they're on my website and people, even if they were to click on them, I still wouldn't get paid for them because it was a dead link, but it was just this spam shit on the side of my website. So I couldn't really control the revenue streams of that. So if you think about it and you think, well, what if everybody could do that? What if everybody could have the $18,000 a year, which again is not really enough money to live on. And in Los Angeles, you can't be homeless for 18 grand a year. I mean, it's just not enough. But let's say everybody was able to do that. And then if they're freed from work, what does that look like? They'd say, here, robot, go work at Walmart. Do that for me. Here, robot, go be a plumber. Here, robot, go be a janitor. Here, robot, go be a truck driver. And then, you know, there's a big to-do about people saying, well, three million different jobs in the driving industry, which I assume they're including truck drivers and cab drivers and chauffeurs and things like that. I assume they're including everybody who drives a car for a living. Like three million jobs are being automated and that's a big thing, apparently, or whatever. A lot of people are worried about that. And I just wonder, like, what if those three million drivers that did that for a living, what if you said, well, your job is gone, but we're going to keep paying you the same wage as though you were doing it? What? Like, what would they do with their time? And that's a more fascinating proposition to me than it is keeping in place this system that sucks, right? So I think too many people are worried about, oh, well, what about all the coal miners? Those jobs are being automated. Good. Coal mining is one of the worst fucking jobs in the world. I think it should be automated. There was a few, there was an episode I had, I think it was 82, where I talked about a tale of two counties, where I talked about like, uh, you know, Marshall County or whatever. Well, the big industry there is chicken plants and chicken plants are awful. That's one of the worst places to work that you can imagine. There's, there's blood and guts everywhere. A lot of chicken plant workers, they have respiratory problems from breathing that shit in all the time. It's really a bad job. But if that were to be automated, I might say good. You know, good riddance to a horrible job like that. For farm work, a lot of that's becoming automated. Well, they talk about on the one hand, oh man, isn't it terrible that farm work's becoming automated and in the next breath, we can't find people to do it. We can't find people to do it. Then in the next breath, we need to allow more immigrants into the country so that they'll do farm work, even though when they get here, they don't want to fucking do it. Nobody wants to do it. It's a terrible job. It was kind of a contrasting message at the Democratic debates in 2020, where on the one hand, they're saying, we need immigration to do these jobs nobody wants to do. And then in the next breath, we heard automation is killing all these jobs, and we're going to need universal basic income to fulfill that. I mean, it, it really sort of was like, you got to let immigrants in to do jobs nobody wants to do, and then the next breath, but the jobs don't exist anymore because robots are taking them. So it, it really sort of became like, huh? The key to the next century or so is going to be decreased population. I think populations have to decrease. There's way too many people. The Earth's population today should be about half of what it actually is. And so you're going to see countries begin to scale back their population. We've always thought for a long time that population decreasing was a disaster, that it was economic disaster for a country to have that. Japan, people are so worried because their population's getting so old. But 
I think that kind of maybe they're onto something. Maybe Japan will be better off than, say, Uganda, which is just so overpopulated that it's becoming unlivable. So I think you'll have countries like India and Uganda and some of the others that are way, way, way overpopulated. Right now, we almost think that's better than a country like Japan or China, which is, has an inverted demographic where you have decreased population growth. That could be wrong from the conventional economic thinking. That could be the way that it should be, which is where robots gradually take over more of the jobs. And then the people that are left, they live more comfortable and leisurely life with higher paying jobs or no jobs, and they get paid a decent wage or whatever. So we could see inverted population growth, the key to a more prosperous country. I know that sounds crazy given conventional thinking, but if you think about it, unlimited population growth is sort of the ultimate Ponzi scheme because you're asking people to just keep having more and more. I heard that from the Republicans in the 2016 primary. They said like, oh, millennials are not having enough kids, so there won't be workers to pay for the baby boomers' retirement. You have to have more workers paying into Social Security to make it solvent. People were saying in favor of more and more immigration, especially for low-skilled, low-education jobs, which makes no sense. They're like, oh, well, we need more people working in those industries, so that way it pumps up the Social Security. Why not just take all the trillions you're going to squander on universal basic income, put that into Social Security to make that solvent, and then encourage more automation of these lower-class jobs and decreased population, so that way there's no need for a lot of these jobs. If the population gets gradually slimmer throughout the next coming decades, then a lot of the jobs that are going to be automated, it doesn't really matter because there's less workers to work them in the first place. To me, that just seems to make a lot more sense than, you know, again, this is something, if you really think about it, it makes more sense that way. Kind of fascinated with the prospect of a world where a lot of people don't have a job. And what does that look like? I know I've used this example just a few minutes ago, but we used to be in the food chain. We were constantly running from saber-toothed tigers and having to hunt our food. And we ate something or we could get eaten. And once we took ourselves out of that, we could build cities, we could build amazing things that the world had never seen before because we weren't in loincloths running around trying not to get eaten by tigers all day long as we ourselves hunt, hunted boar and tried not to starve to death. So once we no longer were starving to death, once we no, no longer were getting eaten, look at what we were able to do. And so I almost wonder, like, in a world where the majority of the people are not truck drivers or cashiers or janitors or farm workers or factory workers or all these jobs that are supposedly being automated, a future that's not that, it could be dramatically better. I'm not wringing my hands over this idea that like, oh, all the warehouse workers and all the factory workers, they're all going to be replaced by robots. That could be better. It's just that the problem might be we don't yet see the jobs that are going to be there. And we haven't yet figured out a way to properly monetize the jobs that are going to be there. Like what I do for with Alabama Liberal to where people can do that instead of the jobs that I really get paid to do, which are terrible and backbreaking and painful and wear and tear. I mean, my dad, uh, he was a steel worker and he worked in the steel industry and his knees messed up, his shoulders messed up, his back's killing him. He's got like a disc that, that, you know, he can't go on long car rides, certain movie theaters that are uncomfortable. He can't go watch a movie. I mean, there's a lot of things he can't do because he was doing physical stuff for years and years and years. 
one point, I remember he came home and he had two of his fingernails were missing. A machine had ripped out two of his fingernails. He looked like an Iranian torturer had got a hold of him or something. His hands were mangled up. These jobs take an incredible physical toll on people. And when you hear people say, oh, we'll just raise the retirement age, Social Security, we'll, we'll just raise that to 70, and Medicare, we'll just kick that in at 70. I'm like, you, you don't get it. You know, you really don't get it because people who work physical jobs, they can't. At a certain point, their body can't do it. They can't go past a certain point. He retired, not necessarily, I won't necessarily say retired, but he just said, I can't do it anymore. You know, like I, I can't. It's just physically not possible. So he's now in that position where he's worked his entire life and a lot of things like the Army and uh, steel work and factory work, things that are very physical. Uh, before that, played football in high school and stuff. And so he's got a lot of aches and pains. He can tell you when it's going to rain. You know, like the day before it's going to rain or when it's going to get cold before it actually does because his joints start swelling up or whatever. So he's now in this where it's like he couldn't go back to work at a factory if, if he had to. He, he just couldn't do it necessarily. But so when people say things like, well, we've got to raise the retirement age, that's numbers on a spreadsheet. And that's not taking into account people's lives. Like they look at numbers on a spreadsheet to make that determination, but people's lives and the way they actually live. And that's the dark side of technocratic ideas and things. I, I used to say that I was a technocrat and I am in certain ways. I mean, I do think there's better ways to do things we do. But then you can also sort of factor out people's lives when you do that stuff. Like I think too much of Silicon Valley, it, it's not factoring in the way people live so much. They don't care about it. Pete Buttigieg, I want him to get a little bit more experience before he becomes president because, okay, like an idea is Secretary of Transportation. He likes this idea where basically there's a sensor on your car and the more you drive, the more miles that it clicks in and then you pay more in taxes to help fund the roads. Now that's a technocratic idea. It's kind of been around for a little bit. It's not his idea. People said it and then he sort of picked up on it, but that's an idea that it sounds great if you don't factor in people's lives. Because a lot of people who are poor, they have a long commute. Like if you work in Manhattan, you might live in Jersey and you commute to Manhattan every day. You, you know, you might, you might live in the Bronx and you commute to Manhattan every day. For people who drive a car in Los Angeles, there's certain part. You might work in Beverly Hills, but you live in the Valley or you live in East L.A. and you have a long commute. So you're going to be racking up more miles, which already sucks for you because it's wearing on your car and it's gas because you have to pay more in gas. But if you then put a sensor on their bumper that keeps track of their mileage so that you know to charge them more for road repairs and things like that, it's another kind of regressive tax if you think about it because they're having to do a lot more driving because they can't afford to live in the nice areas where the work is. Otherwise, they would. I mean, most people don't want to have a long commute. If you could afford to buy a house in Beverly Hills and then work there or whatever, you would definitely do that, but you can't. And that's why you got this long fucking commute every day to get to work. And so that's going to be a regressive tax to do it that way. Also, I don't like it because, you know, people might do Uber or they might be drivers or they might, you know, and, and Uber's not going to pay that. They're going to shift that onto the driver and make them pay it. There's a lot of reasons to be against it. I also don't like it because it's another way to keep people at home and in their neighborhoods. And a huge problem with rich people is that they're already in their neighborhoods too much. They don't go out in the world. In Los Angeles, it's incredibly easy not to be aware of how much people are suffering. Certain neighborhoods, they are basically gated communities. Beverly Hills is, is essentially a gated community. 
and there's not a lot of homeless people wandering the streets. Like they don't go outside the mansions in Bel Air and say, "Hey, I need five bucks." Or what. Like they police run them off. If they're there, they make a move. They run them off. A lot of places where you see big homeless encampments, like downtown LA, a lot of rich people barely ever go there. And if you have like East LA, which is the poorest part of Los Angeles, they never go there. I've never been to East LA. I've lived here for you know years. I think I've been there once in two or three years. And so you just barely ever see East LA if you're a certain kind of wealth and a certain kind of money, you just never go there. And so the closest that a lot of rich people come is maybe the airport when they're going to, because airports are usually not in the nicest part of their cities that they live in. And unless they see poor people right outside the airport, they don't see them. It's easy to cordon yourself off and separate yourself from that. In Minneapolis, the suburbs are very wealthy and a lot of people there, they're suburban. They don't hardly ever go to the city. So they don't ride public transit. Kind of a big deal, right? Like the more I think people ride public transit, the more that you'll see people that are not that wealthy. But if they don't ever do that, they don't see them. And if they don't ever go to certain neighborhoods, they don't see them. And so it's almost like poverty is invisible. And unfortunately, I think putting a sensor on your bumper and then limiting the number of miles that you drive, more people will say, oh, well, I won't drive this. I'll stay home or I'll stay in my neighborhood or I won't go out exploring or I won't go. that." I think that's unfortunately going to make a problem worse that's already bad. Too many people are already a little too isolated. They're already a little too insulated. They don't go out in the world enough, I think, especially today. Coronavirus kept a lot of people at home and they wore masks for over a year, which is a little dehumanizing. I, I wore a mask. You know, I did. I followed the rules. I wore a mask. I wanted to. I wanted to save my life. But whenever people get kind of upset about this idea of, oh, we'll wear a mask forever, and people like me don't like that. They say, well, it's for your safety. And I'm like, you know, there's got to come a point where it's not worth it to be so fucking safe all the time. You're not living You got to wear a seatbelt because that's your safety. You can't go out and drive your car because that'll be an extra tax on your bumper. And so you want to be safe. You don't want to drive, right? Oh, you got to wear a face mask at all times because you care about your safety. It comes to the point where you're not living. You're basically just too safe all the time. You're not doing even basic shit. If it comes to where an entire generation has absorbed from coronavirus that they should wear a face mask forever and just never see the face of a stranger again, it's just too much. And number two, it exacerbates a problem with the younger generation where they're spending so much time behind screens. They're not interacting face to face. They're not really meeting a lot of new people. Strangers are sort of, it's dehumanizing. Face masks are dehumanizing. And so I kind of don't blame people who don't want to wear them. I wore them temporarily and I wore them because it was legal and I had to. I can't blame people for not wanting to wear them forever because it's very dehumanizing wrong with the world to where it's like you can't see another person's face, muffled voice. You're talking to stormtroopers at that point. You can't see them. You can't interact with them, really. In terms of the future, it might be an exciting prospect to get rid of work and to get rid of money and to take away some of these things that occupy so much of our time and so much of our lives. It might free us in a lot of ways. Or it could be an economic disaster and everybody could be living the Great Depression 2.0. Right now, that's kind of what we're living to where the big tech companies, they make all the money from automation and Most people have seen no real benefit from that. And so you're going to see working class people get squeezed and squeezed because that's where the greatest automation is happening at this point. The trucking industry, the coal mining industry, cashiers. I'm not necessarily that pessimistic about it because automated cashiers have been around for a while. They've been around for about 15, 20 years. They started to automate cashiers when I worked 15, 20 years ago. 
And so they began that process then, but you go into Walmart today, it's not all automated cashiers. It's one or two automated checkout lanes and then one or two cashiers. Restaurants, they started to automate those. Honestly, I'm surprised there's not more automation than there has been. And so it hasn't turned out to be the total economic collapse that many people have predicted. Most people that worth their jobs. What if they didn't have to? Think about your job. Think about what you do. Whatever it is that you do to make money and to pay yourself, what if you didn't have to? What if you had that time freed up? Would you do art projects, a grand project you've always wanted to do, home repair? Would you spend more time with your family, make love to your spouse again? Whatever it is that you're not doing, travel more. Whatever it is that you've always wanted to do, you would then have the time to do it. Because so many people, you hear that, you'd be like, oh, well, you're going to travel this year? Oh, I can't do it. Can't get off work. Go to your kid's game or whatever. Oh, I'm, I'm having to work that day. Oh, have you started doing that uh, that uh, project? You've, you know, you've always wanted to do this. Oh, yeah, I would, but I'm so busy with work. And so really think about it. What would that look like if that wasn't your answer for everything, if you were freed from doing that? Could be exciting. Okay, people, thanks for listening, and stay tuned for episode 86 coming up shortly.